question that we have is what kind of vitamin fish oil is good for a 12 year old? Um, well, I, I, the, what you're looking for in fish oil is uh, the omega threes and uh, which contain uh, substances called uh, EPA and DHA. Um, and fortunately they make some good capsules um, that have the fish oil. Um, if you're trying to do it naturally in the diet by eating fish, you want to go with fish that are low in mercury, like salmon is good and cod. Uh, you could go with cod liver oil, but um, but that doesn't taste well. So unless your child's cooperative with that, sometimes that can be an issue. I like the company Nordic Natural. I also, I, I don't get all of my supplement products from GNC, but I think GNC has a number of good products. Um, so I take, I buy my omega-3 capsules there and you'd be looking for a dose of about a thousand milligrams for a 12 year old. Okay, great. I, I'm a particular fan of Nordic Naturals as well. Um, they're a great, great company. Now I skipped one. I, I just realized I skipped a question okay. as I was going through. Uh, Dr. Copeland, what do you think about the recent Autism Speaks research on the dangers of Miralax? My son is four and has been on Miralax for almost a year. It has helped, but I uh, have always been worried about its safety. Well, good question. I wouldn't unduly panic, but there are some safety concerns. They're, they're not dramatic safety concerns because Miralax has been on the market since 2008 for children. Um, so there's been seven years of experience and there's been no disastrous reports. But the Food and Drug Administration did respond to some concerns because there have been some rare uh, complaints. Uh, and basically, even the prominent uh, pediatric GI specialists have said there's not been enough research on long-term use in kids. So uh, Miralax has this uh, chemical called polyethylene glycol, or PEG for short. And while it doesn't really as far as we know, get absorbed much in the intestines of adults. There's been no specific studies on children. And unfortunately, there was a batch of Marillax from uh, 2008 that was found to have very tiny amounts of some toxic uh, byproducts. Um, so this is not necessarily all batches and they were tiny amounts, but the concern became even if there's a tiny amount of a toxin, if you take it daily for months and months and months and months, could it affect children? So the FDA has approached medical researchers and saying, we, we need to do some studies on this. And um, a famous uh, PEDS GAI doctor, a gastroenterologist, Dr. Uh, Tim Bowie said, yes, it's time we do the studies. And there's been a growing uh, move within standard um, Western medicine to say, let's look how we can handle constipation in the GI tract in more natural ways by um, healthy diets, good exercise, and use of probiotics. So maybe we don't have to depend on Miralax as much. Um, so the, um, if the Miralax is helping him, I wouldn't abruptly stop it. It could be bad to have chronic constipation, but sometimes you could alternate the Miralax with a Senna product like Senecot or a mineral oil product like Condramol, which is K-O-N-D-R-E-M-U-L. Um, but even lo like long-term Senecot, those studies haven't been done. So there could be issues with that. I hope that helps. Do you have any 
other comments or questions on that? Well, we we had another question that involves Miralax. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna skip that for now and kind of go to another topic for just a second. But I think okay. I think that's good cautious advice with all you know all things considered. But I want to yeah. go to because I thought this was a particularly good question. Somebody said, "Hi, what type of questions should I ask a developmental pediatrician?" I go see one for the first time in two years since his diagnosis, and I don't even know what to expect. And they said, thank you. So what should we be asking the developmental pediatrician? Oh, great. Well, it depends on what their training and background is. Um, uh, but it's good that the family's thinking ahead. And whatever questions you have, I would start writing them down now and go in with the list. Um, hopefully, you'll get a developmental pediatrician who has a fair amount of autism experience. And I would think that most would by now in their training. But once in a while, you might run into a developmental pediatrician who maybe is really more emphasized on ADHD or cerebral palsy. Um, so you want to make sure they have a fair amount of autism experience too. And I particularly like it if the developmental pediatrician has a, a fairly good background in applied behavior analysis. And I would say most developmental pediatricians know now that there's ample scientific literature over decades showing that ABA is evidence-based for autism. But I've occasionally run into a developmental pediatrician, this was more a few years ago, I, I would think it's less often now, who kind of had a bias against ABA. So I'd, I'd wanna kind of weed that out. Um, but presuming that they're gonna be open-minded I would then think about, well, what skills does my child currently have? What would I like them to learn? What's the next things I'd like them to learn in different areas like self-help and communication? Are there any problem behaviors that um, I want to decrease in my uh, child? Um, do I need any help advocating with the school districts and uh, or for services like additional physical therapy, occupational therapy, ADA therapy, um, uh, speech therapy, and then ask the developmental pediatrician how they could help you in that advocacy. Um, if you live in a state where there's now laws saying that health insurance companies have to pay for ABA, and if your child's not already receiving ABA or if funding is an issue, then the developmental pediatrician could write a prescription for ABA uh, for your child. So that could be very helpful. Um, and, and so I kind of write this all down. What do I want my child to learn? What problem behaviors do I want to decrease? What help I want with therapies? And go in with your list and realize if you have a long list, they may not be able to get to all of them in the first appointment, but share your list and then together you can prioritize you know, what you're gonna address that visit and then arrange follow-up visits. Wonderful, that's fabulous, fabulous advice. And of course, uh, we should mention that you are, again, a developmental pediatrician, so who better to know exactly what to ask? And you are seeing patients in California and in particular in the Sacramento area, correct? Right, right, my practice is in West Sacramento and I'm licensed in the state of California and I am going to try to get a group of visit uh, patients who want to see me in Southern California and travel down there 
uh, sometime, but it, and that hasn't happened yet. Well, and I, because I had said to you during the break, I, you know, I make no bones about it. I would like for my son to be seen by you. So um, I think that would be wonderful. So I want to continue on. I love this question. Somebody wrote in and said, hi, Shannon, this is a question for Dr. Copeland. Which organic fruits are okay to give kids on the spectrum? My son is five and I want to give him more fruits. I just don't know which ones and how much a week um, should he have because of things I have heard about phenol reactions and they said thank you very much. Okay, well, first of all, to reassure you that not all children um, on the autism spectrum have phenol reactions. It, um, a phenol sensitivity uh, is only in a certain subgroup and fruits can be naturally high in phenols, uh, but definitely in terms of buying fruits, um, I would be aware of the dirty dozen of uh, foods and uh, especially if you're on a limited uh, grocery budget, um, the dirty dozen you want to buy is organic because the dirty dozen foods absorb more pesticides. So for um, fruits, that, that means a variety of, of, of things that would be like apples, blueberries, cherries, grapes, strawberries peaches and nectarines, you de definitely should buy organic on those. And then in terms of whether your child might have a phenol reaction, um, one of the hallmark characteristics is they'll get angry red ears and really red flush cheeks very easily, not just once in a while, but almost multiple times a day. And at the time that they get really red in the ears and face, they can get extremely hyperactive and make have a headache and that um, could definitely be a phenol reaction and then you might want to more closely watch the phenols in the diet. If your son's really not having that, I don't think you should be unduly worried about phenol reactions or try to restrict his fruit uh, too much um, because we need uh, four, four or five servings of fruit a day plus five servings of vegetables a, a day to have a, a good balanced diet. So, but uh, a number of fruits are fairly high in phenols. Uh, phenols are types of chemicals, and one type of chemical uh, that's a phenol is salicylates. So uh, berries, raspberries, grapes, apples, apricots, cherries, dates, raisins, currants, plums, prunes, oranges, pineapple, watermelon, and cantaloupe, all these foods are high in salicylates. Um, so you wouldn't want to be doing a ton of just one of them. Um, some fruits you can definitely give that are not high in salicylates would include pears that you peel. Golden delicious apples are, aren't high in salicylates or phenols. And then mango and papaya. So you do have some choices. If you think um, you just want to mildly lower phenols, and, and it's impossible to eliminate all phenols. You don't really want to do that. But I would just not give uh, the same fruit day after day after day many times in a row and quite a bit of it. So if you're alternating the fruits and you mostly give some pear and um, golden delicious apple, mango and papaya, and then occasionally a little bit of strawberries, organic, a little bit of cherries, uh, uh, so they can get the benefits of and peaches and whatnot. I think they'll be okay. Wonderful. Well, we're thrilled that mango is on the list. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I love um, but I but I love what out talking about the organic fruit because this is the best time of year um, that 
the organic fruit is plentiful, which means it's the least expensive that it is. And at any time of the year, I know we, my son and I went on Saturday, we went peach picking. We picked organic Ooh, peaches, um, which then we, we freeze. I used to think that you had to like get a canner and do all that, but apparently you just wash them, make sure that they're really dry. We've done this before. It's not just apparently. And you stick them in a, a really good freezer Ziploc bag and then you just take them out and use them one by one during the year. And if you run them under warm water, the, the, the peels fall off of them. Um, oh, you've given me an idea. I have a, a organic peach tree in my backyard, and I was wondering what to do. I freeze those <laughs> puppies. You, we, had, we had organic frozen peaches all year long, and they're plentiful right now. They're fabulous, and they're inexpensive right now. And there's Good other tip. there's other fruits that are organic and uh, papaya is crazy and ex or not papaya mango excuse me is crazy and expensive right now and it's really good. Yeah. Uh, okay, I want to go on to some questions about skin and we had several different questions about skin. I want to start with one about a clogged pore on the scalp. Uh, they say, Dr. Copeland, what is the cause of clogged pores on the scalp? Is it yeast, too much sugar, or allergies? Well, maybe none of those things. That's actually a hard question to answer. And I'd have to say, I don't know. And I would recommend that you take your child into um, their doctor and have the doctor look at whatever you are seeing. Um, and if you're just talking about one specific area where the skin look of the scalp looks unusual to you and you think it's clogged, or if that's what a doctor's told you is the problem, um, it occurred to me, if it's one specific area you're talking about, there could be what's called a sebaceous cyst. Uh, so sebaceous glands or oil glands, and we have oil glands in our scalp, of course, that uh, provide oil to our hair. And if they get blocked, you can get a little cyst formation that's filled with oil. Um, and if that's what uh, your child's doctor thinks it is, uh, they could refer to a dermatologist who could then either drain or excise the cyst. Um, and uh, other than that, you know, there's a lot of other different scalp conditions, so I'm not sure what it would be. Okay, so the best thing, though, is to, to go and have the doctor look at it and yes. have a conversation with the doctor who's got eyes on it. Exactly. Okay. Now, somebody else wrote in and wanted to, they said, Dear Dr. Copeland, thank you for being on the show and answering questions. Can an itchy rash that doesn't go away be caused by a nutrition deficiency and what factors should we look at? Okay. That, that's a complex question too. Um, and there's a lot of different things that it could be. And it depends, again, is it over a good part of the body? Is it in discrete patches? Um, but a common condition in all children, um, not only children with autism spectrum, is what's called eczema. And it's an inflammatory skin condition. It's often, this eczema is often described as the itch that rashes. So a lot of times it starts with the child feeling itchy skin first and they scratch and scratch so much to the point that they start to get red, red scratch marks and then the skin gets red and irritated and flaky and crusty um, and can get infected and so forth. So eczema is fairly common and it's not necessarily from a nutritional deficiency. It can be just a skin sensitivity. Again, the pediatrician can help diagnose if it is eczema. About one third of eczema can be related to food sensitivity. So not a nutritional deficiency, 
but food sensitivity. And the most, so that's only one third of eczema. So two thirds of eczema really doesn't relate that much to the diet, but about a third of eczema can be aggravated by the diet. And the number one food that will tend to aggravate eczema are eggs. So if, uh, if the doctor helps you determine that your child is food sensitive, eliminating eggs can help the eczema. And then a, a key point of treating eczema is uh, to really keep the skin moisturized and, and try to decrease the itching. Um, uh, moisturization goes a long way. And sometimes the doctors will recommend things like Nivea or Eucerin, um, Cetaphil, um, Vaseline. Uh, uh, something that's gentle um, and hypoallergenic to keep the skin moist. I like, um, it's expensive, it's about $21 for a bottle, a small bottle, but it lasts a fair amount because you don't need much. It's called Ancient Minerals Magnesium Lotion. And uh, it, the skin absorbs some magnesium, so it's a way of, of getting your daily magnesium. And it's got some organic coconut oil and shea butter plus the magnesium. And I think that's good for moisturizing the skin. And, um, and, and where then do you get that? Sure that I've it's never not heard. an infectious condition like uh, scabies, <laughs> that sort of thing, because that scabies is a, a, a microscopic mite, a tiny little insect. It's pretty common in children. It can pass through a, a daycare or whatnot. And that has to be treated with an anti-scabies lotion. Now, where do you get the ancient minerals? It's called ancient minerals. Ancient minerals, and um, they have different products. And the one I get is a magnesium body lotion. I just order it online. Okay, I've never heard of it before, but it sounds great. Yeah, I enjoy it. Okay, wonderful. Now, I, you know, since we're talking about this, because as you were talking about it, I, you know, of course, my son had horrible eczema, and it's something that we hear a lot in the autism community. I always remember Temple Grandin talking about that um, everywhere she goes, and she flies all over the world, and people will come up to her in airports that have kids with autism. She just started doing informal research and as they would talk to her and ask her questions, she would say, let me ask you something. Does anybody in your family have eczema or skin issues? And, and she was just sort of keeping track in her head how many of these autism families uh, said that they had eczema. And it was overwhelming uh, that it was almost 100%, according to her very, and she even she says, very informal research. And my son certainly suffered from terrible eczema as a baby and then continued on. And I never put it together before, Dr. Copeland, that eventually when it went away. But when he was about five, we discovered that he had a mild allergy to eggs and we removed eggs from his diet. And that's when the eczema went away. Yeah. Yeah. So he was in the one third of cases that he had a food sensitivity eczema. Now, I'm sure eczema is very common in children with autism spectrum disorder. The difficulty is it's just very common overall. There so go. there's a ton of children who don't have autism spectrum who also have eczema. Absolutely. So I, I don't think there's been any good large scale study to see if eczema is more common in children with autism than the general population, but it's pretty common. Might be interesting. But since we're talking about skin, my, my son is, is 12, but he's very much in the teenage, you know, the voice has dropped. There's a Adam's apple all of a sudden. Yeah. And um, and I am seeing that he, it's not like his eczema of old, but on the back of his arms, 
he is having some sort of a, it's a weird looking breakout, uh, but it's only on the backs of his arms. Now, is that just hormones and being a boy or? It could be in dry skin. You could try moisturizing. I should mention it's rare in this country to get really, really severe zinc deficiency, but there have been some studies to show that, um, children with autism spectrum disorder, at least in these study groups, were mildly zinc deficient compared okay. to the normal population. And that can aggravate eczema. So sometimes supplementing with zinc, but I'd start low, like five milligrams. And zinc can be, if you give it on an empty stomach, it, it can cause nausea. So I, I get nauseated with zinc. Um, uh, but uh, I would think it's rare to, you know, to. Uh, really severe zinc uh, deficiency is, is quite rare in this country. Okay. Dr. Copeland, our next question says, to the doctor, my child chews gum to help with sensory input. Will excessive chewing cause digestive problems? And thank you. Potentially, yes. So that's a good question. I know it's tricky because uh, a lot of kids can have this sensory seeking behavior and they can chew their shirt collars until they disintegrate their shirts and so forth. So gum might be used as a sensory replacement, but if they're chewing a lot of gum, often want to, you want to go sugar-free because you don't want cavities, but the artificial sweeteners called xylitol and sorbitol in gum are um, FODMAPs, um, and FODMAPs are particular ingredients that can cause GI upset with a lot of gas, bloating, alternating constipation and diarrhea. So if your son's chewing uh, sticks of gum many, many times throughout the day, day after day, I would say yes, that could be a GI issue. And I would try to gradually fade back and cut back. Um, he might need a little bit of gum for his sensory issues, but at other times you might see if you can redirect him to other sensory activities that don't necessarily involve oral uh, sensory input. That's interesting because a lot of us have heard over the last couple of years about how beneficial xylitol is for your teeth, that, you know, it, it, it helps your teeth. But uh, we I had not heard before, but it makes perfect sense that it can be uh, digestively that it can upset things. And for our right. kids, that's, it's not a good trade-off. No. Uh, okay. Now we had somebody write in and say for the doctor as a home science experiment, we wanted to time how long it takes for a capsule to melt in water. It's been three days and the capsule still has not melted completely. Our whole family takes supplements. Will taking many capsules cause digestive issues? Anyway, uh, we can help the body break. Uh, any, is there any way that we can help the body break down the capsule and thanks? Well, well, first you could look for kind of natural vegetarian capsules. And if you're going through um, good companies like Claire or Kirkman or Nordic Naturals, even their capsules, they try to make from really good high quality ingredients. But also I wanted to reassure you a little bit because while you did the experiment in water, um, what's in the stomach is um, very uh, acid. And there's a lot of hydrochloric acid in the stomach. It's not water. Uh, and so I want to reassure you, likely those capsules are going to break down. Yeah. And so reasonably, when we're taking a capsule, 
how long does it do you think it takes for it to dissolve and and you know be in the the stomach uh, it probably varies depending on the ingredients going into the capsule but definitely a lot of digestion starts in the stomach because of the high acid content plus the churning of the stomach um, and I would think within 12 hours uh, for many capsules they're going to be pretty dissolved okay. and if you think about it unless you're having capsules coming out in your stool if you haven't seen capsules in your stool you're, you're okay.